Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're back from holiday break with Injadeka Akineli Crosby. Her work is on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in its latest focus show. It's titled Injadeka Akineli Crosby Counterparts. The focus series at the Fort Worth Modern is curated by Allison Hurst. Crosby originated at the Baltimore Museum of Art, where it was curated by Kristen Heilman. The show is on view in Fort Worth through January 13th. Crosby also has designed a printed mural that's wrapped around the exterior of the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles's Arata Isazaki Design Building. It's on view now. Crosby's paintings typically feature elements such as textiles, printed media, and flora from her experiences growing up in Nigeria and now living in the United States in Los Angeles. Her solo show credits include the National Portrait Gallery in London, the Tang Museum at Skidmore College, the Norton Museum of Art in West Palm Beach, and a Hammer Projects exhibition. In 2017, she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. On the second segment, Albert Bierstadt witnessed to a changing West at the Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa. First, Injadeka Akineli Crosby, after the break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades, from 1976 to the present, a small selection of sculpture, and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s, when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, 42 Artists from San Diego and Tijuana, at its downtown location through February 3rd, 2019. The exhibition brings together work by 42 artists and collectives living and working in the San Diego and Tijuana region. Presenting both early career and established artists, Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, highlights distinctive practices shaping conversations and communities in the binational region and beyond. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The critically acclaimed exhibition Bruce Nauman, Disappearing Acts, is now on view at both the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and MoMA PS1 in Queens. Experience Nauman's command of a tremendous range of mediums, from drawing, photography, and sculpture, to performance, neon, film, and large-scale installations, in a major retrospective of his 50-year career. The New York Times calls it, quote, a transfixing trip. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Injadeka Akineli Crosby, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for inviting me to your podcast. You are part of the African diaspora to the United States. You grew up in Nigeria and came to the U.S. when you were 17. In an interview with Erica Ondo in Bomb Magazine, uh, which does great interviews and yours with her is one of the best I've read, you two talked about how study, how your studying African and Caribbean diaspora theory and literature was important to you. So you went on to become an artist and not a writer, of course. So what did you think that visual art might bring to conversations around diaspora that maybe a textual response couldn't? Okay, so when I decided to be an artist and I was studying postcolonial theory, I wanted to do something analogous to what the writers I had been studying 
were doing and what I felt visual art to bring could bring to it that was a little bit different was finding a different way to tell stories, making the stories visual, but also being in diaspora, being someone who exists in diaspora comes with being someone in diaspora means being someone who carries different heritages, different histories on you at the same time. And I wanted to explore how those could be made visible. As someone in diaspora, I carry different histories with me, which is very similar to what someone like Chinua Achebe has done in literature, writing as a Nigerian American or writing about Nigeria, but putting it into this context of post-colonial writing. I mean, one of the one of the you know, it's 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 kind of funny. Not only did you add American narratives into into your life, but you added Texan narratives into your life by marrying a Texan. And Texas to Americans is like a whole nother country. <laughs> yes, I think oh, what it is is like as a Nigerian living in the United States, I carry multiple histories with me. The 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 my history that has to do with having spent my formative years in Nigeria and the history that has to do with having lived in the United States for about 16 years at this point. So when I decided to do art, I wanted to see if I could take, I knew that there was something fascinating about the life I had lived and also being aware that it wasn't just about me, it was beyond me. There are more and more people living in this in-between space, between different cultures, between different countries, carrying multiple histories with them. And I, I was at a point where I felt like people are delving into this in literature, in post, a lot of literature coming out of formerly colonized spaces, but I wasn't seen as many people doing it in art. So wanting to tackle that. And then that set up a big challenge for me. If you want to tackle this, how do you do it visually? So it's its own new and exciting thing, but it's also in conversation with what's happening on the literature side of things. So that was the first um, big challenge for me. But another thing where I felt um, the, the visual art was exciting was my training at that point had all been in the United States, my painting training. So it was like, how do I tackle this carrying different histories with me, but actually do it using a type of painting that I got when I lived in the United States, especially at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. So it really is a training that came down through to me through a European lineage. And how do I take ownership of this thing that I only acquired or inherited while living the second half of my life in the United States? And so that was the beginning of my practice. It was how to put those two together. I mean, was there a light bulb moment where you kind of suddenly began to realize how to do it while you were at PAFA or later at Yale, or was it more gradual? It was more gradual. And so for, for me, the light bulb moment wasn't, the light bulb moment didn't have to do with the formal aspects of the work. I think the light bulb moment really was tied with the themes in the work. So when I started grad school, I had, it's one of those things like when I look back on now and it's very clear to me that I had an idea, I knew what I wanted the work to talk about. I just didn't have the tools to 
verbalize what I wanted to say. And every time I tried to talk about what I wanted to do, I felt very isolated, like nobody understood what I was trying to do. People just had that blank look when I tried to explain it of, I have no idea what this girl is talking about. And so I had a lot of self-doubt. And I think what happened when I started, I took a Caribbean diaspora class. And when I started reading Juno Diaz and Marlon James and Edrid Danticat and people writing out of these hybrid spaces, the light bulb moment for me was that feeling that I wasn't alone and that what I wanted to do was worthwhile and was valid because here are people who are doing it in literature and I'm, these books are resonating with me and are absolutely making sense. And I, you know, there are certain moments when you read a book and it's, it's like coming home or finding kindred spirits and it just strengthened my resolve, but it also encouraged me to keep pursuing, to stay on the path I was on. And then the other light bulb moment I had was when I took a, an African literature class and we read Chinua Achebe. And I've read Chinua, I've been reading Achebe since I was a kid and I've read him a lot and very often, but I had never read Achebe in a class in the United States. And so during this one class, um, the, the Achebe book we read was Arrow of God. And it was so fascinating to me how different the conversation was from the conversations we had had of Achebe when I was in my high school literature class. And what really hit me was someone in the class made a comment about how they felt that they couldn't, they, they, there were moments where they didn't feel they had entry into the text. And that was such an eye-opening moment for me because the way I talk about Achebe to people, I always tell them, when I read Achebe, I feel I'm back home. It really is. When people, when his characters speak, I hear my local language in my head. When he's describing places, I think of where, growing up in Enugu, I think of my summers in the village with my grandmother. It's so familiar to me. And so to hear someone say they felt pushed out or like they were outside looking in while reading him, I think that was the first time, that was an, a light bulb moment because it made me realize that there was something Achebe was doing, not just with the story he was telling, but things he was doing structurally with language that was beginning to create a split in his audience. So it was it, it was creating a dual audience and it was doing this thing where either the way he phrased the sentence either let you feel you were from within the space the sentence was being spoken from or you were outside looking into the space. And so I think once that really clicked for me, I really started trying to break his work down more to figure out all the other strategies he was using and thinking like if I could figure those out, I could actually kind of like 
extrapolate from them, just like kind of lift it and you find a way to make an equivalent in my work because that was something I was interested in doing, having moments in my work where someone, say, who grew up in eastern Nigeria will feel centered in the work and then having other moments where someone who, say, grew up in eastern Nigeria will feel that they they are not looking at something that is familiar to them. And in that area, someone else, say someone who lived in Philadelphia, will feel centered in the work. So constantly shifting who is or isn't prioritized at each point in in a painting. No, it makes perfect sense. Because I have, as you're saying all that, on my screen, your 2017 painting, Dwell Aso Ebi, You'll have to please excuse my horrible Igbo accent. The the second two-thirds of the title translates in English to Cozy Days. Oh. Right? Really? That's what Google says. Oh, no, because it's not Igbo. It's Yoruba, and that gets interesting. We might talk. We might get to that later. Ah, we sure might. Because <laughs> a lot of what you just described in in the reading you enjoyed doing and then even more enjoyed redoing I think is is in this painting that's it, it's in Fort Worth at the moment. One of the things that you do in a lot of work that's really prominent in this painting is your use of framed pictures, pictures that you frame and place in the painting and have looking out at the viewer, not just the picture that's looking out at the viewer, but the people in the the frames are looking out at the viewer. Is that a, a good example of of something you've taken or a device you've taken or a way you've translated literature in in your work? thought of it that way but now the question is in front of me yes because what a lot of the writers I love do is that they create these moments that transport you to something and it could just be something as simple as a phrase someone says in an Achebe book that is so familiar to people from a certain part of the country that you know really taps into the the variant of English we speak, that it transports you immediately. And so one of the words I have floating in my head in my studio is portals, which was ended up being the title for my solo show at Victoria Mirror Gallery. But just wanting these moments in my work that create portals between the viewer and certain places, the viewer and certain times, the viewers in certain cultures and having those portals constantly shift. So I do think of the transferred pictures as kind of like mini portals, but the, I also have these framed pictures within each work, not all the time, but lots of times that I think of more directly as portals. And sometimes they are framed pictures. Sometimes they are things like posters, album covers, portrait cloth, labels on an, on an item on a table, television screens. Lots of television screens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that that's what those do. And I'm looking at an image of the Dwella Shebi and the two framed pictures in it. Well, there's the, the portals of my mother's portrait fabric, but then there's a photograph of my parents. And right below it to the right is a photograph of my husband, me with my husband. And that's one of those things I feel is such a, thinking of the picture of my parents is such a time, there's a specificity of time to that. 
where when I was younger, so probably from when I, my earliest memory, so what, four or five years till when I was a teenager, that was the thing to do as a couple in terms of fashion, at least in Eastern Nigeria, was to buy the same fabric and the the husband makes an outfit, the wife makes an outfit. So when you go to church or when you go to a wedding or party or any kind of celebration, you match each other. And people call it to match. <laughs> so they'll say, oh, they're wearing to match. And so my parents did it a fair amount. So that's a, a, a painting of my parents wearing their yellow with gold to match Sunday best. The, the subtitle for the piece, Ashebi, is a Yoruba word that directly translates to family cloth. So Ashebi is what you do when you take the same fabric and have members of a family or a close group of friends make outfits using the same fabric. So having the title of Ashebi and thinking of my parents in Ashebi and the picture of me with my husband on the floor where wearing an Ashebi that actually comes came from my my sister's mother-in-law who is Ivorian. So thinking of that, but also how the portrait fabric of my mom at this point is a, seems like a family cloth to me, even though it was made for her political campaign. So there are all these tie-ins to cloth and family that made the title relevant. So for me, that has like a, a specificity of time, a specificity of maybe to some extent, maybe even like socioeconomic class. We'll have an image of Dwell on manpodcast.com. I got one or two other things about this painting I want to talk about. But one of the things that I can't stop noticing when I look at the painting is the way you use shadows. So there's a, a, a figure on the left-hand side of the painting who has her hand on a table, and there's a, a, a mug and a teapot on the table, and the shadows for all of those things are exactly the same as the shadows in the portrait of your parents, as if there's a single light source illuminating all of them, as if your parents are less hanging in a portrait on a wall than if they're being lit up by the light source from somewhere off to the left of the painting. How intentional is your matching up all those shadows? The the Dwell Ashebi was a piece that took me a long time to figure out the composition and the setting and how I wanted to situate the girl in the space. So early on in the drawing, I had just the girl and I didn't know the the specifics or the exact details of what will happen around her. But there were a few things that were set in my mind. I knew that I wanted a big photograph in the space that was clearly a photograph, but also felt like the people could be existing in the room with the girl. And so a lot of it was trying to figure out how to plan the space to make that happen. Because the easiest way to do it would just have, have it on the same plane as that of the paper, you know, straight, just have it straight, horizontal, vertical orientation. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be a little bit of a tilted wall, but also not wanting it to be so tilted that the 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 photo the painting on the wall or the photograph on the wall became so compressed that they didn't exist in the same space as the girl. 
And so, and so now it doesn't even sound like such a complex problem, but there were other limitations. Like I knew I wanted that dark shape behind her. So that couldn't be the wall. And this was one that frustrated me so much. I ended up having to build, I, I, I had to take a, the day off from the studio go down to Target and buy like a little doll of a girl and sit her down. I like had a piece of wood and I cut out the chair and I sat her down on it and I used books and stuff to construct the room around her to figure it out. But with the shadow, the shadows on the floor and on the image, I used it to extend that relationship. So I'm happy you saw it. I don't actually don't think anyone else has noticed it, but to have this feeling of they could be in the space or they could be in a room beyond that like a maroon frame so just I, I like it when things do this um or like this flip back and forth between stuff things are not fixed as something and sometimes the, there's a slippage that happens and I like the slippage that happens between the two figures being things that exist on a frame being a picture on a wall and every once in a while you just see them as standing in the room next door. As soon as a viewer sees the shadows, you can't unsee them. They, they hold, you know, to the extent that shadows can hold a composition together. I guess that's, I guess they can, they sure do here. And then you mentioned the window or at least the portal to, to the outside behind the posed figure at the left which is a very weirdly angled window in a very Matisse way. And there's foliage outside also in a very Matisse way. Am I right in guessing that when it comes to windows to the outdoors and foliage? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just, and then going, going back to the, the shadows, I think I'm so happy you brought it up because this is also a piece where the, it took a long time to figure out the shadows so it's just one of those things you see and the shadows are there and you can overlook it as a viewer. But it was a lot of planning how to make it all fall in together. So same way I, I built the maquette for the girl, I had to like create a makeshift kettle. I got a pot from my house and created a fake handle and spout for it and had a mug to figure out exactly what the shadow of the kettle would look like. So it ties into the the shadow of the pink picture to make sense with the shadows on my parents on the wall. And with the girl, I was working with a photograph, so I couldn't really recreate it. But I, I, my, my husband is quite good with technical drawing. So the two of us worked it out where we had to imagine a light source and then do this like running threads from the light source to everything else to figure out how the shadow will fall. Anyway, long story but it was a lot of work to create that cohesiveness to the shadows. And with the, the space behind the girl, with, with certain pieces, there are things I'm latched in on. And sometimes I can't quite explain why that's important. I just know I want to do this. So I mentioned it earlier in the interview, but I knew very early on in this piece, even before I figured out the space, that I wanted a dark shape behind her head. Because I, I, I didn't want it to be about her portrait. And I thought a way I could negate that was having this passage between her head and 
whatever space was behind her. So I was trying to figure out how to create that dark space behind her. I toyed a bit with having it be another picture on a wall. Like, what could it be? Could it be a TV, a picture on a wall, a poster? And in the end, I ended up having it be, talking about slippage again, this thing that is a door or a window, but in some cases, especially when you look at the maroon edge, it actually flips into a wall. But in my head, it it's a, I'll just tell you now, it's a door. <laughs> yeah, or, or not a door, but some kind of opening to the outside. So what about, what about the way Matisse, or Bernard for that matter, put gardens and trees behind people sitting in their paintings? worked for you here yeah so this is the other thing that was making me smile when you were asking the question which is that this show had started off at the baltimore museum of art and it was the space that i was assigned and the show ended up happening is right after you come out from the collection that has all the um the cone collection which has a lot of matisse paintings you walk into this space and after the space where I was, you go into the more contemporary space. So it really ended up being a bridge between the two. And I was thinking of devising a show that did that a little bit, that had elements from the Cone collection, but also had elements from their contemporary collection and kind of became this like bridge that took you from one to the other. And so when I was looking at the the Kung collection, I was really taken by the Matisse's and it had a lot of objects on a table in rooms with striped walls. So that kind of, there's a striped motif that comes through a lot in these six works. But there were also a lot of, um, there were a few that had people in front of either wallpaper or openings that had a lot of flower plant motifs. So I was trying to quote that a little bit. And so with the plants, which shows up in the two dwells, I wanted this dark shape. I was thinking of the Matisse and I was also thinking a little bit of Chrysophily. And this is something I've done a few times, but I absolutely love his blue paintings and just how sublime they are it, it having something in painting that is and I don't even think I did it successfully but having those moments that are hard to photograph and you you have to see it in real life because it looks flat if you photograph it but when you see it in real life you realize there's a lot of richness and variety to an area that looks like it's just a flat blue area so I was trying to do this dark ultramarine, this rich like ultramarine cobalt's dark space. But when you were in front of it in real life, there was actually a, a lovely variation between that midnight looking blue and the plants in front of it. So I don't know when Chris Ophelia started his blue paintings, but you have made two monochrome-ish portraits, Janded from 2012 and for services, Victoria Regina from 2013. I think those are the only two you've done. It's something you adopted and moved away from pretty quickly, but I'm guessing those are about those Ophelias. Yeah, so that's actually, that has been, I've been trying to do my Ode to Chris Ophelia for a while. So that, that came from, that came from that. And I've actually done a third one, but I, it's not on my website because I, I keep thinking I, I should, 
work, work, rework it again. But with those, is that same thing. I want to have this, um, and those I've not abandoned them. I, I, I like doing the small portraits every once in a while. I actually wanted to see if I could make two for the Fort Watch show. You know, I felt like if I could get, if I could put two more pieces in the show, I'll either like for them to be two planned pieces or two little portraits, but I didn't have time to add to the counterpart show because I felt like the portraits would be such a good addition to this um, body of work. But it's the same thing. I wanted, I like having those moments because I think they really push you as a painter. How can you create difference with the smallest separation? Like how, how can you make a painting of a head that is very clear and everything is where it should be and everything is well articulated, but just the difference between the eyelid and the nose. And uh, so if you think of, if you think of values uh, on a scale from one to 10 with 10 being black, black and one being bright white, how can I work between an eight and a half and a 10 or even a nine and a 10 but have it say so much. So it's a challenge I like setting for myself every once in a while. But I, I get frustrated because it's one of those things where fear takes over. So instead of working between a nine and a 10, I end up working between maybe a seven and a 10. So I keep going back to it because I keep I want to overcome my fear and push myself to keep closing the range. Because you paint something you like and you're worried and you don't want to darken it because what if you lose it and then you'd have to paint it again? And so I end up stopping. And then I get frustrated with myself that I stopped. And then, you know, a year later, I think I'm going to try this again. <laughs> so with this painting, I wanted to try it again. I think for enormously different reasons, Carrie James Marshall was interested in some of the same ideas very early in his career. I mean, and this was before Ophelia, of course. And and so it's interesting that some of the same painterly issues interest you, but for completely different, completely different reasons. One of the fun things across your oeuvre, I, I think this is true of a lot of painters, is is the way they kind of hold on to things across many years of, of paintings. One of, one of yours, probably the most noticeable we've referred to in passing the portrait cloth of your mother's just to give listeners a quick bit of background a portrait cloth is a textile featuring you know a design and then a portrait a literal portrait of of a person your mother had one made for her senate campaign if i remember correctly and that's the one that ends up in your paintings quite often another thing that has recurred in a couple of your paintings is the dress that the woman in dwell is wearing <laughs> Yeah. Now I'm laughing because my husband recently told me, you have to put that dress to us, like, put it aside for a while. <laughs> because I think it's like five, maybe five or six pieces at this point. She has that same dress on. <laughs> yeah. So why? So you are right. There are certain things I almost think of them as like my lexicon that I've developed over the years. So there's a portrait cloth as of a couple years now is the plants. Then there are the objects on the table, especially the tea objects. But with the the dress, I it's a it's very time consuming to do, but it's also so this is the I love patterns. 
And I've known since early on in my career that I wanted to work with patterns, but I like, I, I like patterns that, that are not simple repeat patterns that a little bit, so I like, I love patterns and I, I, and you can see, I, I always like slip patterns into the work, but I've always, I always knew that I wanted to um, work with patterns in, in a slightly different way. I wanted to find patterns that were a little bit unconventional, a little bit more difficult to see where they repeat or how they repeat. And so this dress is one I love and I use a lot because it really satisfies that for me. It's a Vlisco fabric, which is, you know, the quote unquote African fabric that I've always known I wanted to incorporate into my work because in Nigeria, so it's just a big part of our fashion staple, but wanting to find a unique Vlisco pattern. And so I, I like that this does it, especially the big patch of blue in it ends up looking like stars in the sky. And it, I, I also, it's very tricky to paint because it's, it's hard to see how it repeats. So it's also quite challenging to draw. And I like that, which seems like such a weird thing to say. I, I love that it's challenging to draw. I also, because of all the lines in it, I love how it gives the figure form. So I like having areas that flatten out. So what I like about it is that I can paint it fairly flat, but because of the lines of it, it begins to wrap around the figure, around the torso, over the knees. And so you do have this, talking about slippage again, this flatly painted part of the work that still has form because of the grade of the dress. So that's so for practical reasons, I like it for that. I love the the color it brings to the work. It's just like a nice pop, but it's all it's a pop that is a little bit constrained because of the big patches of blue in it. So the parts that are yellow are it's so for those who can see this as I'm talking, it's a predominantly yellow and blue dress, but there are big blue patches in it. So you do see the yellow, but the yellow is almost like a river that meanders through the dress and creates really nice abstract shapes to the body. So I like the way it breaks down the body when the figure has it on. And in terms of the story behind it, I love using this dress because it's it's from a, a Nigerian designer, Tiffany Amber, who is very successful. Her clothes are quite expensive. So going again to audience and uh, specificity and what people can pick up. If you're someone who is up on Nigerian fashion and you recognize this as a Tiffany Amber dress, then that is that says something different to you than that, that brings something different to the narrative if, if you understand who Tiffany Amber is and who who gets to wear Tiffany Amber. And in an art world context, it's tempting to read it as a reference to Yinka Shanabare, who's a British Nigerian artist. I presume that's intentional. It's intentional. So when I talked earlier of about being earlier on about being interested in Vlisco, for me a big part of the connection is one, it's such a big part of your fashion mind or fashion life if you grew up in Nigeria because you know, my mom wore Vlisco almost every day the last fifteen years of her life. But also thinking of the connection to Yinka Shonibari, who's done incredible work that really is 
centered on VLISCO and the history and what it means for people coming from various African countries. So it really is tying those two things to me. And that's why I always wanted to work with Blisco. But feeling like Yinka Shonibari has, you know, it's like he said so much about this. How can I say more in a new way? Or how can I find a different way to talk about Blisco and what it means to me? We've gotten this far without my asking you about your use of Xerox transfer which, in addition to acrylic, makes up the surface of, of many of your works. First, real quick, what is Xerox transfer? So the Xerox transfers is a technique I had learned in a printmaking class at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. I learned it maybe four years before I even knew I ever wanted to incorporate it into my work. So I print out, I print out pictures on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper and the pictures are quite small like postcard size give or take a few centimeters and I put those face down on my paper on my artwork and I use acetone to transfer it so what it is is that the printer I use uses pigment dry pigment but the dry pigment is adhered to the paper using some kind of plastic solution acetone melts plastic which is what we use to take off nail polish, which is acrylic. So if I make a print or if I print out a photo, if I print out an image and I put that print face down on my work paper, and if I rub acetone behind that printout, the acetone dissolves the plastic holding the pigment together. And if I really press down as I'm rubbing the acetone on it, the the released pigment gets pushed into my paper and my paper absorbs it. So when I take off the stuff I printed, there is a transfer on my work paper. So that's what it is. But I like it. I prefer it to collage because you get, you don't get all the pigments. You probably get 35% of the ink to transfer. So there is an abraded quality to it. And there's this, there's this look of details that are lost in transfer. And I, I like, I love all the connotations that brings. So I've heard you talk about your, not just your use of the technique, but also of the way it looks on, on a surface in the context of Wangeshi Mutu and Robert Rauschenberg. Has Romare Bearden also been of interest? He has been of interest, but not with the surface. I think when I look at Romare, what he's really done for me and the inf influence he's had on me is he's someone that I, I, I love the way he takes a lot of, he's able to make these compositions that seem like they have a lot of visual noise, but he holds it together and it doesn't break down. So it's taking something that you feel should just be this cacophony of colors and shapes and edges. Um, and just there's this beautiful symphony that comes of it. And so when I look at him, I'm, the, I'm trying to figure out the how he does that. Like, how is he able to keep this control over this? What are the decisions he's making that lets him bring so many different elements, not just like collapse, 
collage and painting and drawing, but really intense colors. I might not think of being on the same thing, but everything is still held together with such sophistication. And so when I find myself struggling with that, when I feel the work is just breaking down into too much noise and things are not cohering or just things that don't have a, a, a good overarching structure to it, I look at Romare too. You know, what's interesting about that answer is that the kind of, that much of the space, not all of it, that that doesn't feature Xerox transfer is broad, flat color, monotone color. I'm not describing it very well, but you know, you have you have the part of the painting that's Xerox transfer, you and then you have a part of the painting, you know, maybe an eighth or maybe a seventh of the painting that's that's a single color of green. And I'm guessing you really like the contrast between the, the broad flat color and the density of images within the Xerox transfer parts of the painting. Yes. So there are different there are a, a number of pairs of words that I constantly have playing in my head when I make pieces because I keep thinking, I like dualities and playing up with that. And one of the things I keep thinking of, so one of them is inside outside. So we talked of how I sometimes have these portals that lead to the outside world or bring architectural elements of an outside space, like screen walls into an interior space. But a big one I keep thinking of is quiet and noise. So I do think of the the transfers as visual noise, because if you get a chance to look at the work, it's a lot of vibration where the transfers are. It's a lot of information and colors and just like a, a visual vibration. And I feel like a, a good way, and Romer does this, a good way to balance that and to counter it is to have areas that are very quiet and the flat color areas help me do that. So that's one thing they do. But I also love how having those flat areas allows me to quote different ways or like different types of painting or different ways of image making, where in, in the flat areas, they make me think of mechanical production, because lots of times I tape them off and use rollers to paint it. So it makes me think of things like silkscreen printing, a pop vernacular. Sometimes when it's more geometric, I, I think of geometric abstraction. So having moments that allow me quote painting styles that I might not necessarily be working from. We've talked about the plants in your paintings a couple times without kind of directly talking about them. There, there's that one in the background of, of one of the Dwell paintings, and there's a 2016 painting called Grandmother's Parlor that might be a, a fun way of talking about some plants. Plants are probably about half that painting. Why are plants in... I mean, you're, you obviously have fun constructing them. They are visually rich and dense, and they're dense forward to backward. They're dense left to right. Given that you're somebody who, who has spent a lot of time painting, painting interiors what about plants made visible through a window interests you so with the plants I, I only got interested in plants when I moved to Los Angeles the nice thing about I've been that person who I've killed every plant I've had including cactus like just people say you can't kill this and then I 
show them how easy it is to do that. But then when we got to LA, I got a, a like a house plant first time in my life. And just we we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but plant gardens and planting seem like a big part of Los Angeles culture. Just I've been so taken by the variety in plants I've seen. I mean, sometimes I'm driving, I feel like I should stop the car and go ask someone what the plants in their garden is. There are plants I've seen here that I've never seen in my life, ever. Like, But they're like really weird desert plants that are absolutely stunning and drought tolerant. So I've just had this new fascination with plants. No, but um, what, what the plants do for me, same as a lot of other things, uh, multiple, I'm going to try and remember at least two or as many as I can. The first is that sometimes I worry that my work, just there's so much planning that goes into it that I worry that it, it, it can get quite rigid or very linear. And I, 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 I keep trying to find ways to break that a little bit. And the plans do that for me because they, they are very complex and they move in odd ways and they break the space in ways that are different from how I tend to break space not by nature. My nature is very angles and straight lines. Um, so it just lets me step out of my comfort zone, um, number one. But in terms of the themes of the work, I loved working with plants because what I've realized is that there's so much specificity to plants. And I keep, I keep coming back to specificity, how a, a plant like a cassava for me, when I see a cassava plant, it doesn't just make me think of home like Nigeria. It makes me think even more specific. It makes me think of Eastern Nigeria and even more specifically to the rural parts of Eastern Nigeria, because that's where you find cassava. And I keep thinking when I was young, I always we used to drive from Enugu where I was born and grew up to Agolo, my eternal village, some weekends and during big holidays. And it was about a one and a half, two hour journey. And I always knew we were close to the village once I started seeing cassava farms because the root of cassava is a big part of the village um, dietary staple. Um, so thinking of plants that way, like what does it mean to see a plant like a cassava outside a window in Los Angeles? This who I've I've never seen this plants outside Nigeria, even outside the village. So what's the specificity of, what are plants that have specificity and what are plants that don't have specificity because they, 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 they've become naturalized in so many places, but also thinking of how plants were such a, uh, such a good way to map global movements and how people have moved around the globe. Because when people move, they tend to move with their plants and animals. And so I've really been trying to enjoy doing the research part of what are plants that are come from Nigeria but haven't left the country and what are plants that have um, migrated to other places, what are the plants I've seen earlier and what are their origins, and really thinking of having the conversation I've always been interested in about migration and displacement and moving from one place to the other, either by choice or not, but using plants to look at that. That's interesting you mentioned cassava because the plant visible through the window, air quotes around window, 
in grandmother's parlor is the exact plant in a painting from the previous year 2015 cassava garden and one of the things you do in that plant or in those plants is there's a figure of a man wearing sunglasses who is and i know this isn't what you're doing i'm just trying to describe what it looks like visually you know as if the man is superimposed on one of the leaves of the plant who is he and why does he surface in both artworks? Oh, yeah, I've put him in a few works because I like that picture. <laughs> but there's uh, sometimes there are things that in the work that just have to do with my personal, like things that are close to me that no one else might ever know, but that's fine. So a little bit of a backstory. There was this magazine called Arise that was absolutely phenomenal. It was this lifestyle magazine for the continent and it had everything from what's going on with fashion, music, movies, art, design, architecture, any kind of creative field, um, but also people doing philosophy. I'm not sorry, please edit that out. People doing um oh God, now I'm I'm blanking out on what I wanted. Not not philanthropy. Um it's fine, I can't remember. But just like all the interesting things happening on the continent were covered in this magazine called Arise. And so that photograph is from one of the Arise issues that I have, but sadly it went out of business some years ago. But there's this one issue where someone had gone to the beach in Ghana, in Accra, and took pictures of just normal people out on the beach on a Sunday you know, if the photographer thought you were fashionable or had like a, a really cool street style, he took a picture of you. So the picture of that man was in it. And I really love the picture. I love the pattern on his on his dress. His fabric is palm wine, which is just a big part of when I go to the village in my mind, in the guard, in the brown guard. So I love that he has a palm wine shirt. I love that the way he's looking off into the distance and just certain pictures transfer well because of the color contrast. Um, that's a photograph that transfers really well. And I use it because I realize I don't really have a lot of pictures of men in my work because so many of my pictures are me, my sisters, my friends. I went to an all girls high school. So that that's one of the few pictures of men in trads that has a really good quality that I own. So I've, I've used it in a couple of the plant pieces, but in, in the plant pieces I've used it in, usually with the plant pieces, I end up needing two photographs to fill in the whole plant. So it's usually the man and a picture of a woman, the woman constantly changes. So at some point it's been my sister. At some point it's been um, a picture from a Vlisco ad. Uh, Vlisco did a catalog of their iconic designs uh, that has some really beautiful pictures. And I've used two from those for the plants. But the man stays constant. Another thing that's in a lot of your paintings is tabletops. And as part of that, there are also a lot of still lifes on those tabletops, what we might call, you know, in art, in art historical speak anyway, still lifes. So I want to ask you why so many tabletops, but I ask you knowing that the answer may be that they're just there because the still because they're because it's the still lifes that are important. Yes. <laughs> okay. So then why are the still lifes important? <laughs> you know, I was I mentioned earlier when I kind of quickly listed the lexicon 
I mentioned objects on a table. And I think with the, the with the works, I feel like there's a lot I want to cram into each work. Uh, sometimes I actually start pieces and I have a list next to it of just like all the things I want to touch upon. And sometimes at the end of the piece, I realize out of my list of seven, I maybe touched up on four, which is like good stats for me. Um, so I think usually the tables just let me cram more things in because objects carry so much weight. There's this quote by um, a South African theorist that was talking about objects and the way it was described was so beautiful. And it was one of those things I saw and I thought like, yes, this totally makes sense. This is why I love working with objects. So the book is, her name is Brenda Cooper and it's a new generation of African writers Migration, Material, Culture, and Language. And so Brendan Cooper is talking about trivia when African writers write and how they focus on objects sometimes, like describing little objects. And then she wrote, the massive weight of little events, small solid possessions, and apparently insignificant happenings are what embed one in one's time and place. A visit to the supermarket, the bus ride to work, the tea break, the preparation of meals, the list is infinite and the details may be minute. And yet, this is the fabric that comprises social lives and identities. The dailiness of life becomes part of new realities, invested with past experiences, remembered from other places, spaces, landscapes, and climates. And so the objects do the same thing for me. I just feel like objects carry so much of that kind of weight that they let me add those to to the piece. So if we want to jump to another piece from the Fort Worth show, the I call it the Michael Jackson piece, which is Dreams of Jand. So thinking of the objects on the table, and for those who haven't had a chance to see this yet, it's a lime green, a pale lime, there's a pale lime green table with a tray set out for tea in it. And I love that with all the objects on the table, the still life, I can actually begin to have this narrative of something like tea culture, which is a big part of Nigerian life, but it's actually something that came to Nigeria from when we used to be a British colony. And so I feel like in this, so far in this podcast, I've talked a lot about being Nigerian and American But even before I left Nigeria, there is this complex space that exists in the country because Nigeria used to be a British colony. And even though we've been independent since 1960, so long before I was born. But you can look around and see that there and see things around you that are vestiges of when we used to be a British colony. But what fascinates me is how those things did not stay stagnant. They actually morphed and changed with time to the point that they've become unique. So if you want to tie this back to what I was saying about Achebe, it's almost like at this point we have our own variant of tea. And I love speaking to that with the objects on the table. So you have this trade I set out for tea that most people can recognize as tea, I hope, but if you're not from the space this came out from, you do have that feeling of, 
I kind of have a general idea of what's happening, but I'm not quite sure. Like, what is this blue box and what is this peak thing that is on the table? Whereas someone from a space that does see this way is just going to have that spontaneous resonance of, oh my God, St. Louis sugar. We had this every morning and peak milk. This is, you know, these are just like things that were such a big part of my life for a long time. So having the the plate on the table that is British porcelain. So just speaking to our history with Britain again, there's a mug on the table that has an image of Cardinal Arinze, who is a family friend of ours, but also thinking of the influence of religion, not especially in Eastern Nigeria, where I grew up. A, a, a lot of people of my parents' generation were educated in missionary schools. That's how that's how English and a lot of British culture came to Eastern Nigeria was through missionaries and how that has really become interwoven into the fabric of that part of the country. And looking at the the doll on the table, there's a little plastic blue and white doll that speaks to post-colonial commerce. And so the objects on the table let me do that. If, if you look at Dwell Me We, I have a, a La Monaca cup, cup of coffee on the table. Uh, in Nigeria, we don't really drink coffee. And La Monaca, in my mind, is such an LA thing. So that's an object I felt putting it on the table placed the work, not just in the United States, but in Los Angeles for me. So those are what objects on the table let me do. They just kind of like expand the places where I can put more information and create more openings to things. Two more things. Your 2016 painting Facets Screen Wall um, is kind of an anomaly within the oeuvre. It's, it's using something that was kind of an architectural standard or trend couple decades ago in Nigeria, something built into a lot of houses, and turning it into a formalism, a a very formal painting. So what I'm wondering about that painting is why did that appeal to you, and and why did you leave it alone? Why did it only become a one-painting thing? Every once in a while, I I have uh, like this idea that wouldn't let go, and you know, it's not quite clear or solid with painting sometimes you just have a vague idea and you just have to try it and it might take the second or third or fourth time for you to really grasp where this is going or what it wants to be and facet screen wall for me is that which is a lot of how I build the lexicon like the first time I did the plans the plans were just a little part in a room that had a triptych. And then I did it somewhere else where I think, I think grandmother's parlor where it was in the window. When something like that happens a few times, I feel if I'm interested in this image or in the iconography of plants, I should just explore that and see how I can expand on it. And then once I feel I've expanded on it, I can incorporate it back into a more complex space. Same with the objects on the table. The first time I did the objects on the table, it was um, 
it was a party. It was a, a an uh, a work that was the work was I think five Umoizebe Street or seven Umoizebe Street. It was a yellow piece that was based off a party I would have attended as a child, and the image is set in the living room, but behind some of the figures very small you can see the dining table and it has a few tea things you can have you can see on the dining table and I was very fascinated by that and I thought I should just make a piece that is just the tea table and I think since then I've made two or three pieces that are just tea things set out and so the screen wall has been that for me it keeps popping up in works in the background, kind of creeping from the side. So I, I feel like I want to exploit on its own and see how I can take this motif and make it even more complex and make take it to places I've not thought of. So then when I bring it back into a work, it helps. I, I keep fi- wanting to find ways to expand expand my my work and expand my work. And this is how I do it. Every once in a while, I like switching gears in the work. So we talked about the the dark portraits earlier on. That was a gear shift for me because it, it is quite exhausting to make the big, multi, and very complex composition pieces. And so sometimes I think instead of trying to make this work that says A, B, C, D, E, can I make a smaller piece that just talks about C? and C or like D and see what I can do with it. Um, so that was what I did with facets. Can I make something that is quiet and hits a different note from everything else I've done? It still tackles the same themes, but it's a more quiet version, just so there's range to what I'm doing. So I was thinking of making a piece that is just a screen wall and that screen wall actually comes from another piece I had done. It's a diptych called Garden Thriving. And I really loved the shape of the screen wall in there. So I was thinking of making this very simplified piece that had the screen wall, but had an image behind the screen wall that went at a different angle that was a family portrait. But what I ended up liking about that piece is I liked this. There's like a flip between things that are flat and then they flip back into space. And I loved how the face of the screen wall and the, you know, there's a photograph you can see behind the screen wall that shows you that there is a wall behind it that goes at a different angle. So I love that flip from a flat wall to like a wall going into the work. And there's something, you know, there's something about that that I keep thinking, I want to come back to this. There's something here that sparked my interest, and I don't think I've taken it to where it can be. So that's what that was for me. It's like the, the beginning of, not a new idea, but the beginning of a new way of exploring the space within the screen walls. Finally, you know, you you said a moment ago that facets screen wall, you know, you referred to it as kind of a small experiment, but it's five by four and a half feet, and and you work at very large scale. I mean, you know, not not to kid, not to tease, but you know, for you, twenty square feet is is modest. Not 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 that you should have to apologize for working at scale, but something about scale obviously appeals to you, and so the question is what? So. 
one, it lets me pack a lot into the work. <laughs> and I was telling you, my problem is like scaling down. I'm trying to put everything in the work and I constantly have to remind myself, like, think of things as a book and each painting might just be a chapter or a few pages. You don't have to put the whole book in one. And then that way it lets me let go of things and feel like, okay, if I didn't touch up on some X in this, I could come back to it in the next piece. So that's number one. But also what the big pieces let me do is it has to do with the the relationship I want between the viewer and the work. I am very happy when people see the work in real life. There's so much that is lost when you see it on a screen on a small scale, because the way I plan it and design it and really make every decision has to do with your relationship with the work as you stand in front of it. And it expands beyond your, you know, like kind of expanding into your peripheral vision. And so what the large scale lets me do is that I, I, I want to make this works that are you know, depicting this in-between space in multiple ways, like in between Nigeria and here, in between past and present, in between noise and quiet, in between inside and outside, and all these other things, text and non-text. And he said, I want to create the, the pieces in such a way that when the viewer is in front of it, they actually become active in, in making everything activated. And as you're moving, you're actually being made to make these jumps that I'm in, interested in. You're making jumps in place, you're making jumps in time, you're making jumps in culture, you're making jumps in socioeconomic class, you're making jumps in languages of image making, you're making jumps in languages of painting. So I love that when you're, you know, like right now, and I'm looking at a, a photograph of home as you see me. So I love that you can say start in the middle and you're looking at a collaged fabric from when my mom ran for senator in Eastern Nigeria. And of course, portrait fabrics have a really rich history that I can talk about in a second. But just the texture of fabric compared to paint is very different. There's like a nice soft velvet to it. And then if you move a little bit to the right, you run into this chopped up picture of the sacred heart of Jesus. And it's one of those things like it's chopped up enough that if you had that growing up, it's like, oh my God, every house in Eastern Nigeria had this picture. So it really takes you back to a, a specific time and place in the country. And then you come down and you're looking at those crochet doilies that were in a house in the village. And then you come down a bit and you're looking at these painted velvet chairs that were from my dad's house in the village. And then you move to the right a little bit and you're looking at these blue curtains that are actually based off of like a JCPenney or something like that catalog. So the, the curtain is based off of that at the bottom. The top is based, the top of the curtain is based off of the uh, a house we had in, in Enugu in Eastern Nigeria. But also the way the curtain is constructed is very, it, it's, it doesn't look like a real curtain. I just kind of took 
the 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 scheme of how curtains work and then I painted it. So it's actually painted in a very mechanical way. It's almost like formulaic, mid blue, like dark blue, mid blue, light blue, mid blue, dark blue, dark band, dark blue, mid blue, light blue. So it's very like, like a computer. It's like a computer painted curtain. And then you move a little bit and you're looking at photographs from Nigeria from a certain like my, from my first Holy Communion in the mid nineties. And then you move up a little bit. This is now on top of the painting of the guy with the uniform. And you're looking at pictures from 1956, from when the queen came to Nigeria and there are these school kids waiting to see her. And you move a little bit to the right and you're looking at a photograph of tea that I set out in a house in Enugu. And then you move to the top a bit and you see this Nigerian family wearing Ashebi. They're all wearing blue and they are wearing traditionals, but the men are wearing hats, which is one of those like leftover things we had from when we, from being a British colony. And they're posing with a Nigerian lawyer who is wearing the white which we do because one of the leftover things we have and you move to the right a bit and there's a picture from when the Chibok girls were kidnapped and the mothers are crying so there's this like constant jump that I really want to put the viewer in so your your eyes are always recalibrating in terms of the surface and how the surface is made when is it painted versus printed versus collage versus fabric but even when it's painted the way it is painted when is it rolled on versus like put on thickly with paint versus made with multiple really really thin layers of transparencies so there's this constant readjustment that's happening optically and I think having a big work really lets me create this cinematic landscape for the viewer to travel through. That, that painting is uh, seven feet by seven feet. Injadeka Akineli Crosby, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, Tyler. This has been fun. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tide wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. What is the sound of community? Find out at Sounds of LA, a free annual concert series at the Getty that explores our city's varied musical geography. Each month features concerts by charismatic musicians who combine global influences in unexpected ways. On January 19th and 20th, hear the Puerto Rican bomba and plena sounds of Los Planeros de la 21. Learn more at getty.edu 360. Welcome back. My next guest is Gilcrease Museum curator Laura Fry. She joins me to discuss Albert Bierstadt, Witness to a Changing West, which is at the Gilcrease in Tulsa through February 10th. 
The exhibition spotlights Bierstadt's depictions of native cultures of the Great Plains, as well as his views that include American bison. The Gilcrease co-organized Bierstadt with the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Peter H. Hasrick, the Buffalo Bill Center's director emeritus and senior scholar, curated the show. The exhibition catalog was published by University of Oklahoma Press. Amazon has it for $35 in paperback. Laura Fry, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Uh, thank you for the invitation. The paintings that most people, scholars included, I think, first think of when they think of Albert Bierstadt are the capital B, capital P, big paintings of the American West, especially the paintings uh, based on, though, of course, not always of, the Sierras and the Rockies. This show is built around Bierstadt's interest in and travel to the Plains, his pictures of the Plains Indians and Buffalo. Why those two components of his work? Well, for this exhibition, we were looking at Bierstadt's entire career and where he ends up at the end of his career. And the idea for this exhibition came about from Bierstadt's final major painting, The Last of the Buffalo, which he painted in 1889. And this painting, unlike much of his earlier work, is a political statement. It's really a definite call to action to prevent the extinction of the bison. And we wanted to explore how did he get there? What did he observe throughout his career? What changes happened in his work? And um, how does he become uh, a part of the early conservation movement at the, the end of his career? And why the Plains Indians? Well, that's that's part of the, the image. The, uh, the Last of the Buffalo is this eight-foot-wide painting, this herd of bison in a valley that resembles Lamar Valley in Yellowstone Park. It's this beautiful, broad valley. And there's a, a group of Plains Indians, possibly Shoshone or, or Crow, who are hunting the bison. So you've got this sort of full picture of the American West, but in the foreground, there's bones strewn across the, the plains and the, and the grasses. And uh, what we believe you're saying is that as the bison are decimated, that that will also have a negative impact on Native cultures in the American West. So he really saw the impact of the bison would not would really have this this incredible impact on native people so we took that final painting and looked at both of those subject matters throughout his career both at his images of bison and also how he portrays native people across his career listeners probably best know the painting as having been in the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington DC it's now at the National Gallery of course uh, we'll have an image of it also on, on manpodcast.com. Well, let's start with bison then. There is a super little 1859 oil on paper sketch slash series of studies of bison in your collection at the Gilcrease and in the show. And, and we'll have that too on, on the website. Do you think that Bierstadt was interested in, in bison because they were uh, unusual looking and unfamiliar to his primarily Eastern audience, at least early in his career, his primarily Eastern audience? Or, or, or were there other reasons? You know, it's hard to say for certain. Bierstadt did not write much about his work, so we really need to look at the artworks themselves and glean what we can. Uh, I suspect it was a little bit of both. The descriptions I've read of bison on the Great Plains in the 1850s sound completely incredible. And at that era, these, you know, people traveling from Europe to the United States, they didn't care about the mountains. They wanted to go to the Great Plains. They wanted to go to Kansas and Nebraska because of the wildlife. And it's it's hard to really picture. And so I think that just must have been this incredibly moving sight to see millions of bison. These are enormous animals. And to see millions of bison pouring over the Great Plains. And it's certainly, you know, these are animals that you don't see back east, although at one point they did exist as far uh, east as Buffalo, New York, which is where it gets its name. 
but these would have been unfamiliar animals to his audience in New York. So there would have been kind of this exotic appeal to them. But I think he must have been moved by, by the sight of these great herds. There's a famous print after John McStanley of, of bison swarming across the plains like ants to ants swarm. I think I'm mixing my uh, my my fauna metaphors, <laughs> but there's there, there's a very famous print of, uh, and we'll have that on the website too. Probably the best visual representation uh, of that circumstance in, in the plains is uh, is after a John McStanley painting, um, and it's of of bison just flowing uh, everywhere as if they are um, you know herds of ants or something across the the vast expanse of of, of the West. The Plains Indians. What was Bierstadt's interest in the Plains Indians. So just for a, a quick bit of context, there, you know, when Bierstadt starts painting the American East in the 1850s, you know, he, he, he could have gone into Maine or northern New Hampshire and, and painted Native Americans there. I can't recall him ever having done so. But he gets to the Plains and he's interested in, uh, in the peoples he finds there. What was his interest and why? West of the Mississippi in 1859, he travels with a, a lander expedition, and they follow the Oregon Trail. And I think that year alone, there were almost 20,000 people traveling back and forth on the Oregon Trail. And then as they pass through the trail, they also are encountering Oglala Sioux people on uh, the Great Plains in Nebraska. When they get to the mountains, they're encountering Shoshone villages. And I think, uh, again, it, it could have been um, because this was so different from Bierstadt's experiences in the eastern United States and Europe. I mean, he was already very widely traveled, uh, but he'd never been to the American West. I think he hadn't encountered cultures like this before, at least certainly not in that density, when he was you know, growing up in Massachusetts and, and this, this immigrant from Germany. I think, again, looking at the images um, that he produces, I think he felt some affection for Native people. And also the, the party that he was traveling with, when he was traveling with Lander, Lander's uh, was on uh, this expedition from the government, and his goal for the expedition was to assess how some of the tribes are doing through the Great Plains and the Rockies. So he's really interacting with many of these Native communities as a diplomat, as a representative from the government, but not coming as uh, into conflict. He's really... Um, and he had a good relationship with many of the tribes. And so Bierstadt also, so that introduction from Lander really helped Bierstadt to appreciate the, the cultures he saw and really see the the beauty and the lifestyle. He certainly idealized this this image of Native Americans on the Great Plains and in the mountains in his landscapes and his uh, paintings. So I think he saw something that was he perceived as an adventurous lifestyle that surely appealed to him in some ways as an artist, but also as someone who enjoyed the outdoors himself. So speaking of, of Last of the Buffalo, the painting seems intentionally sentimental to use the construct that Rebecca Bedell uses, I think, to great success in her new book. It, it seems to me like a painting that's intentionally, pointedly more emotional than, than most Bierstadt's. What do we know? What do, his, what do Bierstadt's, Bierstadt's sketches suggest about how, intentional, how intentionally he was trying to crank up the emotion and the sentimentality. So I think I think he absolutely was trying to crank up the emotion in the scene, and you know you have again with the uh, this idea that these are the last of the bison, that that there's this finality, this this looming ending, and in the foreground there's buffalo bones scattered on the plains, but there's also a couple of dead bison, and if you look closely in the shadows, there's also um, a Native American hunter and a horse that are included in this kind of pile of casualties from the hunt. 
So he's really showing that this, this level of destruction that has not been shown in his previous work. And uh, I think this painting was really inspired by his invitation to join the Boone and Crockett Club. So he joins the Boone and Crockett Club, which was the first conservation organization started in the United States in 1888. It was founded by Theodore Roosevelt and also by George Bird Grinnell. And Grinnell was also the founder of the Audubon Society, and he ran a magazine, The Field and Stream. And Bierstadt was, I think, the first founding member they invited to join the group. So he was right there from the beginning. Uh, And they made it their mission to enact federal protections for the wildlife in Yellowstone Park. And at that point, Yellowstone had been a park for about 20 years or 15 years, but uh, there was nothing to stop rampant poaching. So there are still bison and antelope and elk in Yellowstone are being hunted at a really fast rate. There's really, there's no uh, measure in place to protect that wildlife. And from those initial meetings of the Boone and Crockett Club, Bierstadt certainly would have heard more information and about this greater scale of destruction than perhaps he had even realized. Because at that point, in the late 1880s, there's only, one of the counts said that there were only about 600 bison left in all of North America. It's from millions when he first travels west, then 30 years later, um, the millions are down to just a few hundred. And really, I'd imagine meeting with that group, hearing the full scope of the issue, and realizing that Yellowstone Park was sort of the last place where they could potentially preserve a few remaining wild bison, he's inspired to create this painting that has a much larger emotional impact. So maybe one way of talking through Bierstadt's interest in the people of the plains is through a couple pictures. One I wanted to bring up was an oil on paperwork that's in a private collection. It features Frederick Lander on his horse, and he's standing with Chief Washke. It's a really kind of gripping, small, dual portrait. What does it suggest to us about about how Bierstadt was kind of beginning to think about people in, in the West? Well, it, it is. It's a beautiful portrait, and we believe it was done on site as Bierstadt's traveling with Lander. And uh, Washiki was a, a well-known Shoshone leader who was even a uh, collaborator and in many cases an ally of some of the U.S. troops because the troops were in, and were in conflict in some cases with the Shoshone people's traditional enemies. So Washiki was seen as a very uh, kind of positive figure to many Anglo-Americans traveling in the West. They're really presented in, on the same level. They're given a similar treatment in the portrait, a similar level of gravity. And I think he's He's showing these two leaders, prominent leaders of the American West, you know, really holding their own and as equals. There's another oil study in the show that pairs the head of a buffalo with the head of an Indian from uh, an unidentified tribe. It's a, I don't know, it struck me as, as, as a really intense moment of interrelation. That painting is from the Autry Museum's collection. And it's uh, works like that where we can see that you know, Bierstadt's really thinking about the connection between Plains Indians and bison. And of course, especially in the 19th century, there was a really, the bison was an economic mainstay uh, for many Plains tribes and uh, was a major part of their, their overall economy. And, you know, I think uh, Bierstadt certainly would have observed how the buffalo was used through many parts of tribal life. And as he's, you know, looking at not out west on the Great Plains, but in uh, Brooklyn. We think that might have been based on his observations of Buffalo Bill's Wild West in the 1890s. 
So Buffalo Bill had bison with the Wild West, and he had uh, Native American cast members who were Lakota Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation. So uh, that could have been Bierstadt in his New York home traveling to Buffalo Bill's Wild West and looking at these two subjects uh, and certainly making that connection even at that place where they were very far removed from their original home. There are a number of other artists in the show, and having now seen it on, on different walls in different states, you've probably had an opportunity to compare how Bierstadt treats these subjects to how, say, Worthington Richridge or John McStanley or whomever else treats them. Are there differences that jump out at you? Yes, it's been uh, wonderful to really spend some time with these works and see some of the comparisons. And one of the things, you know, of course, Bierstadt's so well known for his scale, and I think he, he does bring this immense scale to these subjects that many other artists had approached in decades previous. But he, in some cases, is really bringing this, this immensity and this, this gravity to the subjects that earlier artists uh, working on a smaller scale didn't quite approach. And I think he's, he's really creating, an, in many cases, an, a very ideal image of the West. His images are just diffused with this perfect glowing light uh, he is such an incredibly talented painter. So when you compare his scenes of the Great Plains to, say, George Catlin's scenes of the Great Plains, you see this world of difference where Catlin's work really suffers by comparison. I mean, he just wasn't as skilled an artist. So I think you can really appreciate, uh, you know, Bierstadt's training from Europe. He's bringing this academic style to the American West, and um, it's these, this his really beautiful precision is. Uh, in many cases, exceeds some of the uh, previous painters traveling through the West. So I have two questions about kind of the relationship between Bierstadt's tendency to play fast and loose with with actuality and how the the show considers that, or maybe maybe it doesn't matter. One is there's an 1865 Bierstadt. It's a it's a good size painting in which he puts a, a buffalo hunt along the Merced River in Yosemite. You know, something that never happened. <laughs> It's a painting in a private collection. What does that suggest to us about Bierstadt's interest in Buffalo? Do you have guesses as to why that was a thing he did? <laughs> uh, certainly. And you know, that's one thing that we've gotten a lot of questions about and something that's often considered for Bierstadt. It's how accurate are his paintings or why was he exaggerating the mountain peaks to the extent that he did? And in this exhibition, we in some ways were considering we're not that's not the main lens that we're viewing his work through. We're really looking at what he chose to portray and what message he sent. But I suspect his um, bison hunt in Yosemite, which of course never would have taken place, uh, was really his artistic license and bringing some of his creativity to these various scenes that he'd observed throughout the American West. And he's pulling those all together to kind of create this ideal image with the excitement of a buffalo hunt and the drama of the vertical cliff faces from Yosemite combined to make the sort of extra special image of the... I mean, it's, it's important to remember most of his viewers were living on the eastern seaboard and never would have had a chance to visit the Rocky Mountains, the Sierra Nevadas. And so they had no idea one way or the other. And also, I think the this sort of the extra level of drama he brings to the work is based on some of his German training. He's he's has this sort of operatic, theatrical nature uh, to many of his paintings. So I think he's really giving it that extra zing and that extra level of excitement by combining what he sees as kind of the most dramatic moments from his travels. So the show is built around, you know, as we've been talking about, how Bierstadt looked at the Plains Indians and the bison and to tease out what we can learn from what he presented 
but given that Bierstadt's landscapes are so often infamously fictional and, and rooted in actuality, but sensationalized and exaggerated, do you have, having worked on the show and now seen it in both venues, a different idea as or a new idea or a better idea of how of whether Bierstadt's look at the peoples of the plains and the bison are more or less actual than you thought when you started? Yeah, you know, I think when before I started this project, which is we've been working on for about three years now, my perception of Bierstadt was was closer to what he's best known for. He does these giant paintings. They're very dramatic and very exaggerated. And what I've found working on this project is that's not the full picture that that I think many of his images of uh, especially as smaller paintings are a much more nuanced, in many cases, realistic view of some of these subjects. While he's certainly idealizing many of these things he's depicting, I think he really was interested in uh, in the particulars of some of these scenes. And you see that that careful detail in, say, his, his painting, uh, The View of Chimney Rock, which is a small painting from 1860 that's absolutely beautiful. This attention to detail and this interest in his subjects in some of his uh, varied wildlife paintings where he's looking at bighorn sheep and mountain goats and antelope in the West. And they're quite accurate. He's not exaggerating the features or making these animals, you know, extra muscular or, or, you know, really he's showing he's really interested in in the reality of these animals and celebrating their presence. So there's a little bit there's a little bit of both. Say his images of a Yellowstone, for example, are very accurate. They are they're very close to those actual places and waterfalls and uh, geysers. So in some cases, he's going way off the rails and, and giving some, you know, the more is more approach and being extremely uh, exaggerated and adding some trumpets and, you know, the godlight coming down from the sky. But in some cases, he's much more subdued. He's seeing the innate beauty of a place without this layer of exaggeration. Earlier work. Laura Fry, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.